All right. Good evening. Okay, turn uh, in your Bibles, if you have them, to 2 Kings chapter 2. Be in 2 Kings chapter 2 uh, in just a second. And uh, I do want to say, first of all, thank you for being here tonight. And um, I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I pray that the next two days, not just for you, but for me, will help uh, me grow in my relationship with Christ. Uh, that's what we're, we're here to, to talk about is, I know it's not a necessarily the sexiest title in the world to talk about spiritual disciplines at a, man, at a men's conference, uh, but growing in our relationship with the Lord, growing in holiness, as we've just sung about, um, is the most important thing for us as men in terms of uh, what God has called us to be. He's called us to be leaders. He's called us to be husbands and dads and workers and providers and uh, so the most important thing is that is that we can grow into being the men that God wants us to be. And so we're going to talk about uh, spiritual disciplines over the next couple of uh, days here together. Uh, as Matt said earlier, my name is John, and I am a pastor in Lebanon, and I'm about to transition out of that role to working at the North American Mission Board. And all, all that that means, North American Mission Board exists to help churches, just like Journey, uh, all over North America to uh, proceed on mission for Christ and to reach North America for Christ. And so that's uh, what the, the organization's about. My role specifically is going to be helping young pastors engage in that task. And so that's what I'm going to be uh, moving into. But I've uh, been here in Middle Tennessee for six years. I'm married to Ashley. Uh, we have three kids, uh, Maddie, Emma Grace, and Judson, and uh, have loved living here and, and uh, are excited about where we're heading, but uh, obviously sad about leaving the folks that we love so much here uh, in Middle Tennessee. So I look forward to spending the next couple of days with you. Again, we'll be in 2 Kings 2 here in just a second. As, we, as you think about spiritual disciplines, as you think about growing in your relationship with Christ, okay, Eric Geiger, who's the, the vice president of Lifeway uh, Christian Resources, which is, is headquartered in Nashville, Eric Geiger, after uh, Lifeway did all kinds of research, all kinds of study, they came out with this conclusion, which shouldn't be anything of a shock. Reading your Bible is the number one predictor of spiritual growth, okay? Reading your Bible is the number one predictor of whether or not you will grow spiritually. So that's the, that's the baseline. You want to grow in Christ. What's the most important thing you need to do? Read your Bible, Okay. So that's, that's good news on the one hand that we know that. So say, I want to grow in Christ. What's the number one priority for my life? Read your Bible. The bad news is I'm afraid, and I, I could be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but I'm afraid that most Christians that I know either don't know how to read their Bible or don't enjoy reading their Bibles because they have a lot of them or they have access to a ton of them on their phone, but they don't actually read it a whole lot. And if they do, might read a couple of verses here or there, or a little quick devotional here or there, but, but they don't really immerse themselves in the Bible. And they don't really know how to think uh, the way that the Bible tells you to think. They don't know how to be the kind of husband that the Bible tells them to be, or the kind of father the Bible tells them to be. Uh, and so if we want to grow in Christ, number one thing we need to do is to read our Bible. And the problem is most Christians don't know how to read their Bibles. And most Christians especially don't know how to read the Old Testament, okay, which is two-thirds, if not more, of our Bible. And it's the Bible that Jesus had and the Bible that, that Peter and John and Paul and, and, and so forth had. And so most Christians don't know how to read their Bible, don't know how to read 
their Old Testament. And so that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Now, hopefully we can all be honest with each other that one of the reasons why Christians uh, can't read their Bible and especially can't read their Old Testament is because it's weird, right? I mean, let's just be, let's just be honest. There's stories in there about a man who sacrificed his own daughter as a vow to the Lord. There's laws in there about, you know, not mixing fabrics together. Like, why does God care that I wear polyester other than it's a bad fashion statement, right? I mean, what's the big deal? Why, why does God command the people of Israel to wipe out entire populations, including the women and children and the cattle? Why does God do that? Doesn't that sound weird? And here in 2 Kings 2 is a story that if you were to, if you were to go on YouTube or you were to go to Google and search this story, you would find video after video after video of people who hate Christianity, atheists or people who are antagonistic to Christianity, who point to this story as, as one of the reasons why you should discredit Christianity. Because it's a story about a prophet, a preacher named Elisha, who has these, these young boys come out, make fun of him, make fun of his hair. And Elisha, the, the sweet, spiritual preacher of God, curses the little boys, and bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of them to death. And people look at that and they say, yikes, that's disgusting, that's weird, that's bloodthirsty, that's violent. That's a classic overreaction. I mean, my goodness, just because they made fun of your hair, you had bears come out of the woods and kill them. And so this is the kind of story that makes people say, you know, I'm just not sure about the Bible. I'm just not sure about the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's really, really weird. And so skeptics use this story as kind of ammunition to discredit Christianity. And these are the kinds of stories that cause those of us who are Christians, who, who claim to, to love the Bible, it causes us to be kind of shy about reading the Old Testament. And kind of like, you know what? Don't understand all that weird stuff. I think I'm going to stick with James in the New Testament. I think I'm going to stick with the Gospels, or I'm going to stick with reading Proverbs or reading Psalms. But, but this stuff, no, I can't, I can't read uh, these kinds of things. And what happens is, and, and maybe y'all have talked about this before, the, the brave souls who do kind of dare to wander into the Old Testament and, and dare to read it, what they most often do as they're reading these stories is they choose a character study approach. And so they look at the stories and they say, okay, is this story filled with good guys or bad guys? And if the main character is a good guy, then I need to imitate his behavior. And if he's a bad guy, then I need to avoid imitating his behavior. And that's, that's kind of what the whole point of the story is about. And so I've heard sermons and seen Sunday school literature and uh, seen, you know, vacation Bible school stories where they'll say the point of the David and Goliath story is you need to be brave like David and face your giants. Or the point of the Daniel story is you need to be a prayer warrior like Daniel and pray no matter what. Or I saw one that was like a children's Sunday school quarterly that said the point of the Ruth story was that you need to be nice to your mother-in-law like Ruth. Okay, now, I think it's great advice to be nice to your mother-in-law. So those of you who are married, be nice to your mother-in-law. That's really good advice. The story of Ruth has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with being nice to your mother-in-law. And then, and then there's the bad guys, right? So yeah, pray like Daniel, be nice to your mother-in-law like Ruth. Uh, don't be lustful like Samson, okay? Don't covet and take what doesn't belong to you like 
Achan. Okay, so these are the, the, the way that the Bible is, is read is, okay, evaluate. Is this good guy or bad guy? Somebody I need to copy or somebody I need to avoid being like. While all of those tips are good advice, you should avoid lust. And you should pray. And you should be brave, right? And you should be nice to your mother-in-law. All of that is great advice. But what it does is it, it, it causes us to look at the Bible as no different than, than Aesop's fables or whatever cartoons your kid or your grandkids watch on television that, that have these like nice moral lessons. You really should share with your brothers and sisters. You really shouldn't take what belongs to you. You really should be nice to your friends and, and, and help them with their homework. Like that's, that's what we've reduced the Bible to is Aesop's fables. Is just, hey, the dog with the bone was content with what he has and you should be content with what you have. And that's the way we're kind of flattening out the Bible with these, with these tips on how to live life. The massive problem with that is not just that it misreads the Bible, although it does. The massive problem with that is that it gives the implication that the message of the Bible is obey God so that he will accept you. Okay, that's a problem. Because you haven't obeyed God. You won't obey God. You can't obey God so that he'll accept you. And so you're in a, you're in a world of hurt. You're in a big, you have a big mess on your hands. The, the message of the Bible isn't obey God so that he'll accept you. The message of the Bible is that God has accepted you in Christ, therefore you obey him. Those are two completely different things. The message of the Bible is right that it's, that it's not by your works that you're saved. You don't get credit because you're the good guy. It's by grace, something you don't deserve, that God has given to you because of your faith, that you take hold of by faith, okay? These are two completely opposite things, and yet when we read the Bible in this way, we miss the gospel altogether. And so because of that, when people come to stories like this, where these kids call Elisha baldy, and he curses them, and the bears come out uh, and kill them, they, they don't know what to do with that, and so they'll reduce it to these moral tales. You know what this story is about? Be respectful to your elders, okay? That's good advice. But that's not the point of the story. Well, you know what this is about? Don't make fun of pastor's, Pastor Matt's hair because he's going bald. Okay? Good advice. Probably do I probably should. But yeah, don't make fun of his hair. Okay? That's okay. But that's not, that's not the point of the story. So how do we read it? I mean, what do we do? As, again, as good advice as that may be, it misses the whole point. Not just the story, but the whole point of the Old Testament. The whole point of the Old Testament. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 is writing to his the, the, the young guy that he's mentoring, Timothy, right? And he says in 2 Timothy 3, he says, Timothy, since you were a child, you have known the sacred scriptures, which is the Old Testament, okay? And he says, the, the point of the Old Testament, from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Paul, what's the point of 2 Kings 2? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Paul, what's the point of Leviticus through all those weird like sprinkling blood on the altar to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? What's the point of Proverbs to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? What's the point of Esther and Chronicles and all of these stories? It's to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the whole Bible's about. So the entire Old Testament is about. And that's what this story is about in 2 Kings 2. It's pointing us to judgment and salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do is, because I, I want to 
help you engage in these spiritual disciplines so that you will grow spiritually. And so I want to tackle this question, how do you do that? You say, how do I read my Bible? How do I read 2 Kings and, and read it as all about Jesus so that I grow in my relationship with Christ? And the way that I, um, kind of the, the practical way that I know to say how to do this is that you read the Bible the way that you would read a murder mystery novel, okay? But specifically, you read the Bible the, the way you would read a murder mystery novel for the second time or the third time, or the fourth time, or the fifth time, or so on and so forth. You read it, you read a murder mystery novel for the second time, you already know the ending. You already know the climax. You already know the mystery that has been revealed. And so when you read it the second time, you see clues, and you see patterns, and you see details that you may not have seen the first time when you're reading it, but now you're reading the story in light of the, the climax, and you see, okay, well, that makes sense. I know why that's happening. In the same way that if you watched uh, the movie The Sixth Sense the second time, after you already find out, right, that the, the kid can see dead people and that, and that Bruce Willis is dead, then you don't see the movie the same way twice. You can't read a murder mystery novel the same way twice. You read it with the end in mind. We know the end. We know the mystery that has been unveiled. Christ is the Messiah. He died on the cross for our sins. God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He will return in glory to set things right. We know the, the climax. And so as you're reading the, the little stories that fit into that big story, you're going to see what the author of Hebrews calls types and shadows and hints that point to something greater than themselves, okay? So you're reading it like you would read a murder mystery novel. This is, again, the way I, I think through this practically is when I was a, when I was a child and I learned to read for the first time the first books that I would kind of read on my own like cover to cover was a series of books called Encyclopedia Brown has anybody ever heard of that or read that okay nobody okay great that's awesome this is gonna be a great illustration um but let me explain to you the reason why I liked Encyclopedia Brown it was, it was a series of books okay and Encyclopedia Brown was a fifth grader who was a detective, okay? He was a fifth-grade detective. And he would solve fifth-grade crimes, like who took Tommy's yo-yo, okay? And who cheated on the math exam, or, you know, those, those kind of crimes. And so fifth-graders would come to his house, pay a quarter per case. He was getting a lot of money, a quarter per case. Uh, and, and then he would go through and try to gather clues and, and try to solve the case. And, like, in these, in these books would be 10 cases in every book, 10 short stories, and the reason why I loved these stories and why I read them was because it was an interactive kind of thing. You were trying to be the detective. So you would read the story, Who Took Tommy's Yo-Yo? And at the end of the story, Encyclopedia Brown would crack the case. He'd figure out, okay, Bugs Meanie took Tommy's Yo-Yo. And the story would end with a question, how did Encyclopedia Brown figure it out? Okay, it wouldn't tell you how. So how did he crack the case? And the answer was at the back of the book. And so you read the book, you were the one who was supposed to be the detective. You're the one who's supposed to figure this out. And I was always such an idiot that I could never figure it out, okay? And so I'd read it and like, okay, I'm trying to be the detective and okay, you're a moron, John. And so I'd flip to the back of the book and then like the clues are right there. Encyclopedia Brown knew that he took the yo-yo because of this, 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 and this. And it's like, oh yeah, that's really obvious. I should, have, I should have seen that. And then what happened is I finished all of the books. I never got one right. It's like, what am I gonna do now? Okay, I love these stories. I don't, I don't want to read whatever textbook I'm supposed to read in class, so I want to read this. And so I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read them again, but I'm just going to clear my head of all the knowledge that I had previously, and I'm just going to approach it like it's a blank slate, 
and I'm going to read them like I'm reading them for the first time. But that was impossible. I couldn't read it like I was reading it for the first time because when I read the stories again, it was those clues were staring me in the face because I already knew the ending. It was like, this is so, so obvious, okay? And that's the way that you should read the Bible. When you read the Bible, you're going to see things in the Bible that you say, man, that sounds familiar. Gosh, don't, haven't I heard of something like that before? And, and you, can't, you can't read the Old Testament and clear your mind of the things that you know about Christ, okay? And so you read the Bible the way that you would read a, a murder mystery novel. And so that's what I want to show you. I want to take this story, 2 Kings 2, and, and let's, let's read through it. And I want to show you how to read the Bible as all about Jesus uh, so that it can help you in your, uh, in, in your own personal Bible reading, okay? So 2 Kings 2, verse 1. We're going to read the entire chapter, okay? And so no better way to learn how to read the Bible than to actually read the Bible. So if you skipped your quiet time all week, we're going to read 25 verses. and going to catch you up, okay, uh, on all that you skipped out on. Because I want to give you the context of what's going on so that we can understand this story specifically, okay? So 2 Kings 2, verse 1, we'll read down through verse 25, all right? Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Like, shut up. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could cross over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and Horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah now rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with you servants, with your servants, fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. 
And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around. And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. And God bless the reading of his word. Three things I want to I show you about how to, read, how to read the Bible. Number one, you need to notice the patterns that you see later. Okay? Notice the patterns that you see later. Now, the main idea of this passage should be fairly clear in terms of the, the main event of what's going on. It's the passing of the baton from Elijah, the prophet of God, to Elisha. Because Elijah is going to ascend into heaven and he's going to pass the baton to Elisha. And so very similar to what we've seen in, in America in the last uh, couple of months, the, the transition of power from one president to the next. This is the transition of authority from one prophet of God to the next prophet of God. Uh, that is what is going on. But the question is, is there a pattern that I see here that I see later? And so what I mean by that specifically is reading the Old Testament through a New Testament lens, you, knowing the, the knowledge of the events of the New Testament and the events of the life of Christ, you're looking at these Old Testament stories. Now, maybe the New Testament actually cites this story. It doesn't, this one specifically. Maybe whatever passage you're in, the New Testament actually quotes it or cites it. That's, that's a helpful clue in noticing the patterns that you're going to see later. But otherwise, you're just, you're just reading it through the grid of the New Testament. And so, here's what happens in this story. Elijah's mission on earth is done. And so he ascends into heaven and leaves his spirit with his disciple that he wants to continue his ministry after he's gone. Does that sound familiar? Where else does that happen in the Bible? Sunday school answers, okay. Jesus, right? So when Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives into heaven, he tells his disciples what? Wait in Jerusalem till you receive my spirit from on high, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so this is exactly what happens in the ministry of Jesus. You have the, the, the man of God who's been carrying out this kingdom work. His time on earth is done. He ascends into heaven. He leaves his spirit so that his disciples can carry on his ministry after he is done. That's exactly what we're seeing in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. In fact, Elisha is uh, pointing us to the disciples in, in, in many different ways, right? Uh, Jesus goes to some of the disciples as they're fishing on the seashore. He says, leave everything behind, come and follow me. Elijah finds Elisha farming at the plow. Elisha leaves behind the plow, goes and follows Elijah everywhere he goes, okay? He says, I'm going with you everywhere you go. So he forsakes all, he persists in following after Elijah, and he's going to replicate Elijah's ministry after he's gone, and he recognizes that for me to be able to do that, I'm gonna need a double portion of your spirit which is exactly what Jesus says to his followers, right? When I go, I'm going to send the Spirit to you and you will perform greater works than even I have performed because I leave my Spirit with you. That's exactly what's happening here with Elijah and Elisha. And so 
This is a pattern that you see later. So you're going to read the Old Testament and say, is there a pattern here? Is there a way the New Testament addresses this that helps me understand exactly what is going on? Second thing that you need to do as you're reading the Bible is you need to notice the flashbacks, okay? Notice the flashbacks. Now, here's, here's what I mean. A flashback, if you're, you're watching a movie or you're watching a, a show on television, a flashback is a device that a filmmaker uses to to show you some past event that has significance in the current storyline, right? And so they're, they're showing you the main character's childhood or something to show you how that affects this man as he is an adult, right? So uh, my wife and I have started watching this show uh, on NBC called This Is Us, and, and some of you may have seen that show, but basically the, the whole point of that show is flashbacks. It's, it's paralleling the life of uh, a father when he was 36 with his three children when they are 36, okay? And it's showing how these past events, these flashbacks, have all kinds of ramifications for the current storyline. Why the two brothers don't get along or why the, the daughter has uh, psychological issues or whatever it is, okay? So the flashback is trying to show you some significance in the current storyline. And the biblical authors do this. They allude to past events. They purposefully embed clues in the text, in the passage, to, to call the reader's mind back to something in the past or to call their mind to something that will happen in the future. It's exactly what the author is doing here. As the author records the movements of Elijah and Elisha, he is communicating something to his audience. He is, you need to understand this, the, the biblical author is being very selective in the stories that he writes down, okay? He doesn't tell you every single thing that happened to Elijah and Elisha. All the time they spend together. Why is he picking these events? Why is he, all the towns that they went to together, why is he talking about these towns? All the conversations that they had, why is he recording these conversations? The reason why he's doing that is he's trying to call your mind back to something that happened in the past. Elijah and Elisha's movements here replay the exodus and replay the conquest that took place under Joshua because he wants his audience to know there needs to be a new conquest. In the same way Joshua came into the land and was to rid the land of Canaanites so that he could rid the land of Canaanite idolatry, now, even though Israel is in the land, they are participating in the exact same idolatry, and so there needs to be a new Joshua who will rid the land of idolatry. That's what he is, that's what he is communicating. So, when, when you see here, for example, right, that Elijah takes his mantle, touches the waters of the Jordan River, and they part to the right and the left, what's he echoing back to? Moses, right? I mean, he doesn't have to say, he doesn't have to write in the text. The other one say, like Moses did at the Red Sea. Every Israelite knows exactly what he's talking about. When he says, the water parts to the right and left, they cross on dry ground. Everybody's mind goes, okay, yeah, the Exodus, the Red Sea, Moses, the great prophet of God. They all are, call, are called back to that specific event. Now, this is what this is, what is going on here. So you can, I know you throw that map up earlier. You can put the map back up here. So let me be, be, be clear about what is going on. You know, they, they had traced the movements, right? And so they, they go to Jericho, and then they go across the Jordan River, right? Right hand, 
water's part, right and left. They go across the Jordan River. So what direct, direction are they going? East, okay. So now they are over here. They are west of the promised land on the other side of the Jordan River. So you have to ask yourself this question, okay. What happened outside the promised land west of the Jordan River, okay? You're trying to find these flashbacks, okay? What, what happened on, excuse me, east of the Jordan River outside the promised land? Well, this is the same area. Sorry, you can, you can leave that there for a second. This is the same area where Moses died, east of the promised land, outside the promised land. This is what's called the plains of Moab out here. This is where Moses died, okay? Not only is this where Moses died, um, this is um, a place where they can't find Moses' grave, okay? Not only that, uh, Moses doesn't get to cross the Jordan River and come back into the promised land, right? Okay, not only that, what else happened out in the plains of Moab? Well, this is where Moses commissioned Joshua to be the new leader of Israel. And how did he commission Joshua to be the new leader of Israel? He imparted the spirit of wisdom on Joshua so that he could lead the people. And then when Joshua is filled with the spirit because Moses has laid his hands on him and he becomes the leader of Israel, what does he do? He crosses the Jordan River going east to west. And the first city he goes to is Jericho. And the second city he goes to is Bethel. Okay. And so Moses, leader of God's people, dies in the same area that Elijah's taken, the plains of Moab. He doesn't cross the Jordan River. He commissions the next leader of, of Israel there. Uh, he, he's filled with the Spirit. And then the new leader crosses the Jordan River, goes in and defeats Jericho, goes in and defeats Bethel. Uh, and that's exactly what's going here. Elijah is the new Moses, the, the great prophet of God. He is commissioning the new prophet, Elisha. He leaves his Spirit with him. And Elisha crosses from the east side of the Jordan River on dry ground, just like the Israelites and Joshua did, goes to Jericho and then goes to Bethel. Now, here's why that's important. Not just so we say, oh, that's really cool. If I get asked in, you know, Bible Jeopardy, what did Elisha do that was similar to Joshua? I'll, I'll know the answer. That's, that's not what's going on. The author is intentionally communicating that Elisha is the new Joshua and that he needs to perform a new conquest to rid the land of idolatry, which he does, Okay. Now, Elisha's name even is very similar to Joshua. Joshua's name means the Lord saves. Elisha's name is my God is salvation. So they have very similar names. And so Elisha is a new Joshua. Now, here's why that's important. As you look at the flashback of what's going on in the past and you see, okay, this was the ministry Joshua had was to go in and rid the land of idolatry and to settle the Israelites in the land. This is the ministry that Elisha has, okay, to go in, provide salvation for God's people, but to provide judgment as well to rid the land of idolatry. The New Testament clearly links Joshua with Jesus in the New Testament. And so now that we see the Old Testament clearly links Elisha with Joshua, that means Elisha is in this line. Joshua, Elisha, and then Jesus. The exact same, Jesus' name is Joshua, right? Yeshua uh, is his Hebrew name. And so this is also pointing us forward to Jesus, what happens with Jesus? Well, on the east side of the Jordan River, which is the Gospel of John tells us, on the east side of the Jordan River, there's a man out there who's baptizing people. What's his name? Okay. 
Who is John the Baptist? Who is he? The new what? Elijah, right? He is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that there's going to be a new Elijah, right? So, so when it's describing John the Baptist as, you know, eating locusts and, 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 and wearing weird clothes and everything, it's, it's not just like some cool thing to keep kids, you know, attention in VBS. It's showing you he's the new Elijah, okay? He's wearing weird things, eating weird things. People think he's a little bit crazy. It's just like Elijah was as the, as the prophet of God, okay? So Elijah, John the Baptist is the new Elijah who, is, who meets Jesus outside the promised land on the east side of the Jordan River, which John 1 tells us. And then he, Jesus crosses from the east uh, to the west. He, he baptizes him in the Jordan River. He receives the Spirit at his baptism, and then he goes into the land. And what does he do? He saves those who believe, and then he brings judgment on the demons and judgment on the, on the temple and the false worship that is going on there in the temple. And so this is exactly what we see in the flashback. It's, it's helping us understand Joshua, Elisha, they're pointing us forward to Jesus who is going to come and do the exact same thing, okay? Now, that leads to the last thing. Again, just practically, how do you read your Bible? Uh, the last thing is to notice the good news of salvation and the warning of judgment. Notice the good news of salvation and the warning of judgment. Here's what I mean by that. A friend of mine, uh, Jim Hamilton, wrote a book called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. Now, that's a, that's a, a mouthful. God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. It's, it's, it is a mouthful. but here, um, It's actually a really helpful book. If you want to learn the Bible, uh, it's a very helpful book um, that I think would, would help you. But Boil the, the message of the book down, okay, if you don't want to spend the money to get it. And boil the message of the book down. The, the, the main point, the thesis of the book is that God shows his glory. The title gives you the message. God shows his glory by saving people through judgment. He says that's the center of the Bible. That's the central message of the entire Bible. Every passage, every book of the Bible is about how God shows himself to be great, by saving people through judgment. Okay, what that means is, what that means practically, again, as we're, as we're thinking about how do I read my Bible, that means every passage that you read is going to have these three elements in it. Okay? Every passage you read. God's going to show his glory, his greatness, his majesty. Okay? Every passage that you're in. The way that he's going to show his majesty is by saving people and judging people. Okay? Every passage is going to have some element of God's judgment, him holding sin accountable, him holding fallen humans accountable. And every passage is going to have some element of his mercy, how he shows his patience and his grace to sinners. Okay? Every single passage. Now, I think in the small group time, I, I give you um, one passage to look through, and I can't remember which one it is, and so I hope I don't give you the answer to it now. But just, just think about the Bible, right? Uh, main stories of the Bible Noah's flood, right? What does he do? He judges human wickedness, but he saves Noah and his family through the judgment, okay? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He judges the evil and the wickedness of Sodom uh, and Gomorrah, but he saves Lot and his daughters through the judgment. Uh, the Red Sea, right? He saves the children of Israel, dry ground, through the waters of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army that pursues, what does he do? Water comes down on top of their heads. Okay, judges the Egyptian army, 
but he rescues his people through the judgment. So every passage has this in it. God shows how awesome he is. We're going to look at a passage tomorrow uh, in 2 Chronicles 20 where this massive army, this coalition of armies has come out against the people of Judah and Jehoshaphat is, is scared. The king is scared to death and he goes to the temple and he's, and he's praying to God, God, you need to, you need to rescue us. And God shows his glory by defeating this army that's come out against them and, and, and judging them because of their sin and then thereby rescuing his people. And what he does is he says, listen, tomorrow morning during the battle, what I want you to do is I want you to have a worship service and during the worship services, they're glorifying God. He destroys their enemy without them lifting a finger, okay? So he's judging the enemies. He's rescuing Israel through. So every passage has this in it. The judgment of God and the mercy of God, which, which meets at, points to the cross of Jesus Christ, right? This is what Paul tells us in Romans 3, okay? That, 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 that yes, God has to judge. Otherwise, he isn't holy, but God shows his mercy to sinners in that he judges his son, so those who believe in him will not be condemned, okay? So every passage where you see God's judgment, it's pointing to the cross. You see God's mercy, how he saves sinners through his judgment uh, in the cross, okay? Now, how do we see that in this text? How do we see salvation and judgment in this text? We see that's, that's what Elisha's ministry is. The first thing that happens, again, is you're, you're thinking about clues, patterns. First thing that happens is the sons of the prophets, all these people that Elijah had trained, come out to Elisha and they say, hey, we've got all these guys here. They're not doing anything. Let's go send out search parties and look for Elijah's body, right? And what does the text tell us? They go out and search for the body for how long? Three days. Is that a coincidence? Okay. They search for the body for three days, and at the end of three days, they can't find the body. Okay. Has that ever happened before? Or will it ever happen again, I guess? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. In fact, there are three guys in the Bible, right? Three guys in the Bible that were told, can't find their body, can't find their grave. You know who those three men are? Okay, one's a gimme. That's like the middle of the bingo thing, right? Okay, Jesus is the one, okay? Second one is Elijah, got, uh, got that here. Third one is Moses, okay? Three guys that show up at the Mount of Transfiguration also, right? So Moses dies, they can't find his grave. Elijah goes to heaven, they can't find his body. Jesus dies and they can't find his body because he's come back from the dead, okay? So this, this display of God's power over death, bringing Elijah into heaven, this, this echo of the resurrection is, is the catalyst that moves into Elisha bringing new life to Jericho, okay? So you saw that story where he goes to Jericho and the people are like, hey, this should be a great oasis city, but the water's bad, and so it brings death to everybody. Okay, so the background to this is everybody knows, um, everybody knows about Jericho, right? You, you sang, maybe you sang the song when you were kids. I, I did, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, right? But after the walls come tumbling down, what sometimes we forget is at the end of the story, God pronounces a curse on anybody who rebuilds Jericho. He says, anybody who rebuilds Jericho, it's going to cost them the life of their firstborn son and their youngest son, okay? And this actually happens in the Kings, okay? So even though it used to be an oasis, basically, in that area, and it, and it should be a, a place with plenty of crops, plenty of water, plenty of life, 
the water is cursed because of the curse that God has put on it. So Elisha is going to reverse that curse, okay? So he throws the salt into the water, the water is healed, and all of a sudden there is now resurrection from the dead in Jericho. It's, it's a place that brings life rather than bringing death. And this is a, a, a foreshadowing of what Elisha's ministry is going to be. I hope you understand this too. The miracles of the Bible, I think we have this, and I had this impression as a kid, that the miracles of the Bible are somehow like massive feats of strength to show that God's on the person's side, right? And so it's like, it's the, and if anybody likes this, I'm not trying to, to poke um, unnecessarily, but if anybody's ever heard of the, uh, the power team, there are these, these men who, who go around and say, because the spirit of God's living in me, I can rip phone books in half. And it's like, well, no, but like your muscles look like you're on steroids. But I mean, just, I, can, I can break this Louisville slugger over my, over my knee because I got the spirit of God living in me. So it's like these, because I've got the spirit in me, I can just do these incredible feats of strength. That's not what the miracles are in the Bible. The miracles are like movie trailers that are pointing you to something more important. Like the reason why Jesus is healing the blind is because he wants us to understand there's no blindness in the kingdom of God. The reason why he's healing, you know, cleansing lepers is because there's no leprosy. There's no skin disease in the kingdom of God. Okay. He's raising the dead. Why? Because there's no death in the kingdom of God. Okay. So these are, these are movie trailers pointing you to something greater. Elisha's miracle here that he performs uh, in Jericho is, is showing you what his ministry is going to be like, his saving miracle ministry. So, so what, is, what is his saving miracle ministry? Um, he raises somebody from the dead, he cleanses a leper, and he multiplies bread for people who have no food. Does that sound familiar? Okay, anybody else heal lepers, you know, multiply bread and raise the dead? Yeah, Jesus. Okay, so he's, he's going to have this saving ministry where the marginalized and the hurting in Israel, he's bringing salvation to them. Exactly what Jesus is going to do. And the idolaters and those who have puffed themselves up and rejected God, he's going to bring judgment against them. The same way Jesus clears the temple, right? And so that's, that leads you to the story here at Bethel. So he's healed Jericho. Now he's going to show you his judging ministry. He goes to, to Bethel. And we have to understand what Bethel is. Bethel is the center of idolatry in the nation of Israel. This is the place where they set up a house of worship to the Baals. This is the place where the first king uh, of Israel, of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, created golden calves and said, these, this, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt, okay? So this is the centralized place where the re they've rejected the worship of the one true God, okay? And so when he goes into Bethel, the center of idolatry, and these little boys come out and are mocking the prophet of God and telling him to get out of here, that shouldn't come as a shock that the, that the little boys in the town are acting just like their dads and saying the word of God is no good here. You need to get out, okay? So that, that may be what is going on. The other thing that, may, so, so at one level, what may be going on here is these young boys, again, are just showing how deeply rooted the rejection of the Lord is in Bethel. They're acting just like their dads. And again, he, he's going he's gonna to visit this judgment on them uh, to try to cleanse the land of idolatry, the, to cleanse that land of the, the, the next generation that's going to grow up and reject the worship of God. So at one level, that may just be it. They're saying, when they say, go up, uh, baldy, they may just be saying, hey, the word of God is no good here. Okay? And you can't reject the word of God and expect that God's not going to bring down judgment on you. Okay? Just can't do it. All right? On another level, what may be going on here is that the word that's used here for, um, in, in the ESV, the word that was used was uh, small boys. In the Hebrew, 
This word could actually mean young men, okay? So it may not be like he's cursing toddlers, okay, and having the bears come kill him. It can, it can mean young men. This is the same word that's used. Uh, you may not be familiar with the story, but there's a story in 1 Kings 12 where Solomon's son Rehoboam splits the nation of Israel in two because instead of listening to the elders of, of Israel, he listens to his peers that he grew up with, okay? That word, his peers that he grew up with, is the same word that's used here for the small boys. So these may be, what, what some people think is going on here is that some of these are uh, really like either late teenagers or early 20s young men who are basically seminary students in the seminary of Baal. That's what's going on. These are, these are preachers in training, little you know, preacher boys who are training to be uh, preachers of Baal. And when they say, go up, bald, you bald head, what's going on again that you, that you may not be able to see in the text because of the way it's translated is that you remember those, the, the story as I, as I read it, they went to like three different places, right? Where the, the, the sons of the prophets come out and they're like, hey, Elisha, don't you know that God's gonna take your master away from you today? And they're kind of, they're like digging at him, right? Okay, well, the word master there is, is literally just the word head, okay? So in the same way that you, um, we understand this, right? That Ephesians 5 says that Christ is the head of the church. That means he's master of the church. He's, he's Lord of the church, right? And that we are his body. And so what, what may be going on is they're saying, hey, your head has gone to heaven. He's gone up to heaven. He could call fire out of heaven, you can't do that. You're unprotected. And so you better get out of here or there's going to be trouble. And Elisha's like, okay, well, I'll show you I'm not unprotected because he can call fire out of heaven. I can call bears out of the woods. You know, you know I'm your huckleberry and I'll, I'm going to take care of this. Okay. And so either way, either it's just young boys mocking the word of God or preachers in training who are saying you don't have the protection of God. Either way, God pours out his judgment here by holding them accountable. The reason why he does that, and I think we'll have these verses on the screen. Do we have Leviticus 26, 21, and 22 um, on the screen? This is exactly what he promised in Leviticus. L look at these verses. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And then he says, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. This is exactly what God said would happen. You reject me. I'm going to let loose the wild beasts. Now, later on, when the nation of Israel is destroyed and they're taken out of the land, the, the people that come in and take them, like Assyria and Babylon and others, are described as what in the book of Daniel? Wild beasts. And so what's happening here, Elisha does this, as a warning to the nation, if you persist in idolatry, the beast will come in and wipe you out. That's what's going to happen. If you persist in idolatry, the beasts are going to come wipe you out. And so Jesus had the exact same ministry, saving ministry where he's cleansing and he's healing people and the judging ministry where he's cleansing the temple and he's casting out demons. The difference between Elisha and, Eli uh, Elisha and Jesus is that while Elisha uh, pronounced the judgment, and Jesus pronounced judgment. Jesus is also the one who took the judgment on himself. A judgment that the, the prophets talk about having his hair pulled out and being mocked in the same way that Elisha was mocked. 
Okay, that's the way that he brings salvation to us. And then on the third day is raised from the dead and they can't, they can't find the body. So this is how uh, you read your Old Testament. And again, I, w- I want to be clear about this because I hope, I hope sometimes when I talk about this, people get this idea that what I'm saying is you've got to read this in some kind of new way that nobody else can read it or that you have to go to seminary in order to read the Bible in this way. I, I had one pastor who, who texted me one time and where do you find Jesus in the Gideon story? And I was like, well, he's not like Waldo hiding, you know, somewhere behind the guy with the red shirt. Um, like that, the whole, he's the point of the story. And it's very clear that the way Gideon saves Israel is the way that Jesus saves Israel, right? And so I'm not talking about some secret knowledge that nobody has, but I'm talking about a way that you read the Bible and a way that you ask questions. What's happening here that's going to happen later? What's happening here that's happened before? What's happening here where God pours out his judgment? What's happening here where God shows mercy? And that's pointing you to how to read the Old Testament as if it's all about Jesus. Now, the reason you do that is not, again, not just so you can read the Bible right, although you want to read the Bible right, but because this is the way that you grow in holiness. This is the way. If you read the Bible wrong, if you read it as the same way you read Aesop's fables, It's either going to make you a Pharisee if you're good at being like the good guys and not being like the bad guys, or it's going to make you depressed because you're not good at keeping these things, okay? Neither one of those is a good option. Being a jerk who looks down on other people, not a good option. And being condemned and guilty all the time without the the freeing grace that's found in Jesus Christ, not a good option. But the way that you grow in holiness without becoming a jerk and that you fight against your sin without being condemned because you keep falling short is through Jesus Christ, okay? So that's how you have to read the Bible uh, in this way. And as you do, then, then uh, Jesus is going to change your life, okay? And so we're going to kind of discuss this a little bit more in our small groups. Let me, let me pray, and then um, I'll hand it back over to Matt. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have clearly communicated yourself to us. You've communicated your character, how incredibly awesome you are and that you're not to be taken lightly and that you're not to be rejected and yet you're also entirely patient and merciful. We know all of this comes to culmination in Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that we would read our Bibles. pray that we would read, read, read our Bibles so that we know it We know what comes before. We know what comes after. We know what's going on in the present. Father, I pray that it happens most of all so that we can see the face of Christ because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that it's beholding the face of Christ. It's seeing your glory in Christ that we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So, Father, we ask that you would do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen.